This is Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. A window to the Latin universe. Stanford, 90.1 FM. Radio Atenea Americana. This is Atenea Americana. Bilingual house of culture. On the air and online. Radio Atenea Americana. Su casa de la cultura en la radio y online. Para la radio 90.1 KCSU Stanford. I am Isabel Jubes. Isabel Jubes. Bienvenidos. Atenea Americana. Welcome. Bienvenidos. From Stanford to the world. Today, we are talking with Pamela Campos. She is a remarkable Chicana and second-generation immigrant with strong ties to San Jose and Santa Clara County. Pamela has dedicated herself to education and has had a career defined by her commitment to advocating for it, as well as housing and improved quality of life for all. Pamela witnessed firsthand the challenge faced by early childhood educators and families grapple with the harsh reality of making a life while earning a $16 per hour salary for educating and caring for small children in this fiercely competitive Silicon Valley landscape. So from her own experiences, she will also talk about her work with the Low Income Investment Fund. They are a nonprofit community development financial institution whose mission revolves around mobilizing capital and fostering partnerships to dismantle barriers and ensure equitable access to opportunities for all. This organization invests and collaborates with and advocates with high quality, affordable housing, early childcare, education, educational opportunities, gainful employment, and access to health care. They work with initiatives that are specifically designed to benefit Black, Latino, and other marginalized communities whose opportunities have historically been constrained by exclusionary policies and practices. Pamela will also discuss and talk to us about her work with San Jose for All Community Advisory Board, or SG4A, and their work in liaising city departments, leaders, and personnel to uphold accountability and prioritize the welfare of San Jose's most vulnerable community. So stay with us to learn more about all these community efforts and all these advocacy groups while getting to know Pamela Campos. Welcome to Atenea Americana. Thank you for being here live with us in this interview. Well, actually, if I assume, but anyway, all the same. And thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. I uh, appreciate the gracious invitation to be a part of this radio show. And I'm really excited to uh, share with you all about amazing work that's being done in our communities. Great. So tell me uh, a little bit about yourself. Uh, where were you born and where did you study and grew up? Yeah, so I was born and raised in San Jose. I've lived across the city 
spent a lot of time in East San Jose where my grandparents bought their first home and my parents were able to purchase their home in South San Jose. So that's where I've been living since 2003. I am the eldest of four daughters. My parents moved here from Mexico City in the early 90s. My mom graduated high school in San Jose at Pioneer. I graduated high school in San Jose at Gunderson. Um, I went on to study at Dienza College in San Jose State, where I earned a bachelor's degree in child and adolescent development. And I started my career as a preschool teacher. I have served families wearing a lot of different hats. I've been a developmental specialist, uh, providing developmental screenings for kiddos zero to five. I've been a parent organizer with Parent Voices. And most recently, the work that I've been doing is advocating for early care and education facilities development. So we recognize that um, there's a, a term called childcare deserts, which is similar to what people know as food deserts, where there are people without access to fresh food and fresh grocery stores. So childcare deserts means that there are children without access to childcare. And so the work that we do with Build Up California and our partners is to ensure that there's awareness of the need to invest in early care and education facilities infrastructure um, and, you know, doing the work to get us towards eliminating childcare deserts throughout the state of California. Great. So what is low income investment fund? What, what do they do and where are they? Yeah, so Build Up California is an initiative of the Low Income Investment Fund. And the Low Income Investment Fund is a CDFI, which stands for Community Development Financial Institution. And so what CDFIs are is an entity that allows for uh, reinvestment of funds into communities. And so LIF uh, has locations in uh, San Francisco, New York, Atlanta, and LA. Um, we mobilize capital and partnerships to support underserved communities. And the uh, historical work of LIF has been in affordable housing loaning. Um, more recently, they have been investing in early care and education facilities because we understand that for many families and particularly here in the Silicon Valley, the top two expenses in a family's budget are housing and childcare. So when you co-locate childcare and housing, you are making it easier for families to access the two services that they need most in the same place, which is not only good for their economic well-being, but it's also good for our environment because you're taking cars and vehicles off the road who um, contribute to traffic, contribute to pollution. And so this is a, a solution towards many different goals that uh, we really need to shine a light on. And who are the primary beneficiaries of, uh, of the work of LEAF? So the primary beneficiaries would be um, residents of underserved and marginalized communities. Um, Typically in uh, opportunities where we are looking for affordable housing funds, the larger banks tend to stray away from funding those kinds of opportunities. And so LIF is there to partner 
with communities that haven't before seen access to funding that will allow them to improve the condition of their neighborhoods and of their communities with developments. And so um, residents who you know, live in the most underserved, under-resourced communities of Lyft's um, markets are, are the people who benefit from Lyft's policies and work. Mm -hmm. And how do they find uh, Lyft? So it's, it's not everyday people like you and me who are able to access these funds. It's um, more so for developers. Um, there is one initiative that is working to, you know, close that gap and invite folks to participate um, through an initiative with uh, Black family child care providers. And so you can learn more about the work that Lyft does on our website. Um, we recently relaunched our website. And so uh, it's liifund.org. Um, you can learn more about our work and, and contact us if you're interested in learning more. Perfect. And the link will be uh, with all your information on our website later as a podcast. So you can uh, go back and check it if, if you want to. But this is for the, uh, the people who is listening to us today. Uh, who? Uh, how long have you been involved with them? I've been working with Lyft. Um, for about two years now. Um, and the initiative Build Up California a little longer than that. Um, LIF does a lot of work in the housing space. And as I mentioned, they're also expanding the work that they do in early care and education. And so a lot of my day to day with LIF has been focused on Uh, policy and advocacy re regarding early care and education. Um, and so I, I got into that work because I, as a parent organizer uh, and parent advocate, would hear a lot of stories about parents having trouble accessing childcare, whether they had, um, you know, a job that paid well or a job that just paid the bills, whether they had um, master's level of education or hadn't completed high school. It didn't matter where you came from, where you lived. Uh, parents across the board have trouble accessing childcare in our city. And so trying to find solutions for that problem was what led me to Uh, learning about LIF and, and Build Up California and the, the work of ECE facilities because as an early care educator, our career and our education is so heavily focused on making sure that we understand child development, that we understand the physical development milestones, the cognitive milestones, the you know positive social emotional relationships that support healthy, resilient children um, and and help them become healthy, resilient adults. Hmm. So if you are an educator who is passionate about the work that you do and you want to open your own business, whether it's a, a childcare center or whether it's home-based care, there are a lot of steps that you have to take moving through the process of um, not just working with the state licensing department, but also with your city planning, zoning, business, community and economic development departments, 
which, you know, as an educator, it's, it's a very um, specific system with uh, a lot of attention to detail that if anyone has worked with kids, I mean, having a classroom full of kids from nine to five is, um, it's very exhausting work. It's very rewarding and energizing work, but it also, you know, requires rest and self-care like everything else. So we really do need intermediaries who are supporting educators with the landscape of development and financing and regulations so that we can build more facilities and the infrastructure. Because I, until I started working in this space, I had no idea what zoning or planning were. No idea that those were jobs that existed. Um, you know, we see the, the built environment around us. And I don't think, you know, everyday people realize that there are specific rules and regulations about where buildings can go up and where they can't go up and how expensive it is to go through that process of permitting if there is vacant land that has never been developed and you want to develop it into something new. So it, it is really interesting work that, um, I think when people start to recognize the intersection between the barriers of facilities development and the fact that our early care educators are really put in this difficult space of being restricted by money, time, um, and expertise in the space, it, it makes it clear that there is work to be done and having a cross-sector approach is what's been very fruitful in helping us get our work done. Hmm. So I know there are, for example, programs that help people to learn and also to repair or put their house in a good state so they can open a home daycare, they can get educated, they can refit their environment in order to work with little children and have a, a good space for them. So this is also the kind of things that these institutions do. So that's not the work that LIF does. LIF is a low income investment fund. Um, you know, being being a CDFI, they're 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 a bank. They're essentially a nonprofit bank. So their work really focuses in, you know, affordable loans. There are other entities that are established to support family child care providers through this tedious process, um, for example, our resource and referral networks. Every county in the state of California has a resource and referral network for us in Santa Clara County. It's located with the Santa Clara County Office of Education. And this is a place where um, people who are interested in becoming family child care providers can access resources, get support and learn more about the process between um, you know, the, the local rules and regulations and the state rules and regulations to become a, a licensed family child care provider. Perfect. So you are a policy and program officer. What, what, what do you do? What, what exactly does it mean? So how, how, how you help people with this position in particular? Yeah, so um, that was a, a role that... Um, because right now I have started uh, working with LIF um, through a contract basis. 
And so um, my policy and program officer role in the day-to-day, I've been mentioning a lot about Build Up California. And so that would make up the most of my time is working on communications for Build Up California, having meetings with uh, partners and legislators regarding the um, state level advocacy we were doing, uh, as well as federal advocacy. We host webinars where we inform our network about the work that we're doing, about uh, upcoming key policy that they should be aware of and can help us advocate for. Um, Another role that I have uh, and continue to have with LIF is facilitating and coordinating a group called the National Early Care Educators Practitioners Advisory Committee, which is NEPAC for short, and brings together 12 leaders in the space of ECE, Early Care and Education, who are across the country um, in California, in DC, and New York, to come together and learn about what is happening in each region and what has been successful in in our regions to work towards collective efforts of building ECE facilities infrastructure um, nationwide. And so hosting meetings for them to come together, bringing in guest speakers and checking in with them one-on-one to understand what we can do to support their leadership development um, is a lot of what I do with Low Income Investment Fund. Hmm. So all, all of this kind of been the the topic of all your work and your interest. Uh, what were you doing before? As you say, you were already worried and somehow helping these causes. What were you doing before you start with LIF? So um, before I started working with LIF, I was working at Build Up San Mateo County which is uh, located at their uh, resource and referral network in San Mateo County, the four C's. And so that was the, that was the jump that I took from being a direct service provider where I was doing developmental screenings with kiddos zero to five and hearing all the parents' stories about how hard it was to access childcare and really was able to start um, taking steps in the direction of finding solutions for those uh, issues that that were very uh, present, not just in Santa Clara County, but I realized across the state and the nation. In San Mateo County, what happened was that there was a year that the state subsidies, um, the county had to give back a million dollars of state subsidies, which subsidies are like voucher um, funds for parents to pay for childcare if they need, uh, you know, some support, financial support with that. They can apply for vouchers and then they get to choose a childcare location uh, for them to use that voucher. So because San Mateo County didn't have enough physical spaces, the facilities to like use all of those vouchers, they ended up having to give a million dollars back to the state, which was really troubling because 
clearly there are families there who are eligible to receive the financial assistance. They have the need, but because the physical spaces didn't exist, it was, a uh, you know, like sounding the alarm for an issue that needed to be addressed and needed to be addressed quickly. So there was a task force that was put together to identify solutions to, um, towards the addressing the ECE facilities crisis. And Build Up San Mateo was the brainchild of that report because it was this entity that was going to work locally to bridge that divide between the world of ECE and the world of govern, government, land use, uh, and finance, and really have staff dedicated to communicating about the issue, but also finding solutions, working with city councils, the board of supervisors, nonprofits, uh, faith-based organizations, large employers, you name it. We were out there you know, bringing everyone into the conversation and making sure that folks were not just aware, but taking action because everyone can agree that it's important to care for our children. It's, it's important for our economy that we have access to childcare. We saw during COVID how many women left the workforce because schools closed down and who was going to care for the children. It has always you know, historically fallen on the shoulders of women to care for our children. And so we are making the case that without childcare, our economy cannot function. And literally we are losing $122 billion a year nationally by not investing in childcare because women aren't able to participate in the workforce. They're also not able to climb the career ladder and reach um, you know, the executive level of leadership that we know we are very capable of um, operating in. We just need the opportunities. And so childcare is a huge barrier that is um, contributing to the wage gap that we see widening every year. And so it is really uh, important that we invest in this work. And um, I have just been growing in this space of early care and education facilities, whether it's policy, advocacy, financing, even, you know, the design of it, because the the level of design that you need to build a high quality early care and education facility is going to be very different from how we're designing K through 12 schools. I mean, you think about the size of young children, they need um, access to sinks that are their height. They need access to toilets that are their height. And the uh, caregivers and educators in that space need access to um to visual space that allows them to observe and supervise the room at any uh, location in the room that they're at. And so there are really innovative ways of making sure that that happens, but it has to be a conversation that starts at the beginning and not at the end, because when we're talking about developing homes, right, if we're which a lot of the work that we do is advocating for the co-location of early care and education facilities with affordable housing. You need to think about plumbing and electrical and space, all of that uh, as you're designing the building. If you try to squeeze in childcare at the last minute, you're going to realize that you're going to spend a lot more money because you didn't think about it from the get-go. And so, uh, I, you know, I can't emphasize enough how important it is that folks understand the issue of uh, early care and education facilities and the lack of availability 
uh, throughout our region, which I've met parents who live in Santa Clara County, drive to Alameda County to drop off for childcare, work in San Mateo County, and just think about how that's contributing to our traffic and our pollution and you know the quality of life for parents when they're spending more time on the road with, than with their families. And the quality of life of the children also, how, how that changed their life. Yes, so in order to have an early childhood education facility that is licensed and is, you know, everything up to date, you need very specific requirements in space. The kids need certain uh, square footage for open areas, play areas, uh, specific requirements for the restrooms. Also, there is a specific requirement for uh, the ratio between adults and kids that is different to K to K to two or and then different for every different uh, other age of the children, different requirements in education. So with all this, it may or may not be one of the main issues that are making these places so complicated to have, apparently. What do you think are the real challenges that makes so complicated to have enough early childhood education spaces and places to put daycare for little babies? And, you know, we cannot forget that one of the biggest issues around the daycare and early childhood education um, problem is that this is a country that doesn't have maternity leave. And this is an area, and well, like many areas in the United States, that you actually need two salaries to survive, to pay the rent. The, the gap between different levels of socioeconomic status are really big. So for people to actually be able to pay rent and to stay in the area, most families need two salaries. And not even started to tell any of the stories of single parent homes. So you have a huge issue where you cannot afford daycare, where you cannot afford taking care of your children who actually need a lot of attention and high quality one because they are definitely our future. So it's compounding one problem over the other when you have a lot of single moms trying to go back to work in order to support their kids, but they really either cannot find one high quality daycare or cannot pay for the only options that are out there. So this is definitely a a social issue. And this is definitely something that really affects our community. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many ways to answer that question. Um, I, I, I can share the top five barriers that early care and educate early care educators, um, experience when it comes to trying to expand their um, their work. And so I, knowing what we know in the Silicon Valley and how expensive it is to live here, the, the access to land and real estate um, is the top barrier. There is a lack of physical space. And um, with that issues, finding a site that has already been zoned and planned for early care and education. Um, those are the top two barriers and, and you know, they're related to land use. Um, the next is the lack of local and state funds. So early care educators are paid less than 98% of the entire US workforce. 
let that sink in. You can work at Amazon, Target, Panda Express, and make more than a childcare provider. And so when you're already making, you know, quite literally poverty level wages, you don't have enough money to set aside and save for your, you know, one day you're going to build a childcare center. So we really need local, state, and federal dollars investing in the development of early care and education facilities because the money is not going to come from our early care educators. They simply do not have it. And the, um, the other issues are regarding technical assistance because, as I mentioned, early care educators, their number one focus is the children. That is what we live and breathe and we understand and we get excited about developing our uh, professional understanding of child development. We don't go to lectures to learn about licensing requirements or land use policy or zoning updates. It's not what we do. And so having the technical assistance where a childcare provider can say, you know, this is the kind of center I want to develop, whether it's a family child care home, whether it's a full center, um, having someone like the work that's done in Build Up San Mateo County, like the work that Build Up California is hoping to launch in more communities and neighborhoods, but making sure that early care educators have someone that they can access as a resource, as a tool to understand you know the different systems that they have to work through in order to you know build their facilities and so you know with all of that given that it is land use policy it is fiscal policy and it is investing in the resources that early care educators need to make this happen i would say that you know another solution is electing more women to represent us as leaders in these spaces, because we know that these are issues that impact us as women, whether you have children or not, you may have friends, sisters, neighbors, um, colleagues who are you know, coming to you and having these conversations about what do I do? Do I become a stay-at-home parent? Do I you know, go to work and bring home a paycheck that literally goes to childcare? It's, the the reality of what we're facing and it's the reality of what i face you know when i've thought of family planning for myself i can't afford to have a child right now because i can't afford child care and we see you know birth rates declining and it, it it's just not a conversation that tends to be had by our male counterparts and i've seen it i've been in these rooms where we're talking about redeveloping the downtown of san jose and everyone is so concerned and aware with the professionals and, you know, the employees and the workers, no one's stepping up and saying, what about our children? What space are, the, are they going to access downtown? Are we building our parks for them? Are we building our streets for them? Are we building safe spaces for them to be in while their parents are at work or at school or wherever they're at? It's not a conversation that tends to be brought up by people who aren't women. And I think that, you know, the more we get into these spaces and the, the more we get into leadership and have these conversations with our, our male colleagues and, you know, make sure that everyone is on board in terms of 
supporting our young children because it, it is for the betterment of our society that we invest in our young children. It's not a women's issue. It's everybody's issue. But women just seem to really be able to take leadership and ownership of this. So, you know, until our our male counterparts can step up and do their fair share of the advocacy and the you know public awareness of the need to invest. I really think that it's our our due diligence to elect more women to elect us, um, you know, in in office so that we can invest at the local, the state, and the federal level for our young children. Perfect. So you are running uh, for office in San Jose. I, I, well, I think we already got a sense of the answer for the next question. Well, it is a very difficult thing for personal experience to, you know, put yourself out there, run for office, go through an election and, you know, face anything that can come uh, pretty much. Yeah, I think the expression putting yourself out there is uh, it, it already says everything. So why are you doing it? Why do you think it's important that you will represent all these issues in our community? I, I appreciate the question because it, you know, I think that I can't stress enough how important it is to see yourself represented um, in government, um, you know, elected bodies and spaces of decision making. So for us in San Jose, Our, our last election uh, created a city council that is uh, 11 members, including our mayor, of whom three are women. And so the fact that we don't even have, you know, parity on city council was my first nudge to want to run for office because it, I wanted my city council member to be someone who reflected myself and my values and my vision for our city. And so the idea that, you know, the, the technical requirements are being a resident, being a citizen and being over 18 years of age, I'm, I meet those qualifications. And so my passion that lies in um, housing justice, transportation justice, education and investment in public safety in a way that really empowers our communities to care for one another and um, you know see the importance of community well-being those are the reasons that I decided to run because my entire career um, and being the eldest of four sisters I have a level of patience and compassion that I think is essential to leading Uh, an office that is overseeing, you know, 100,000 residents and their very diverse needs, um, making sure that we are listening to everybody because everybody who lives in our community is important, whether you are housed or unhoused, whether you have lived here for three generations or you just arrived here three months ago. Everybody in our community is part of what makes Our, our city so beautiful. And so I have direct experience with the undocumented immigrant population. I have direct experience with parents who are struggling. I have direct experience with seniors who worry about their housing. I listen, I learn, and I'm ready to lead on the issues that are impacting our residents in a way that really centers the voices of our community members and of everyday people here in San Jose. 
in your website, you talk about San Jose for all. What is it and how how are they part of, of San Jose and what, what do they do? Yeah, so San Jose for all is an advisory member group that um, it, it's a very new um, working group that advises the city of San Jose's Office of Racial Equity in addressing the need to make uh, San Jose more equitable for all of its residents. And so we've had two meetings so far, and we'll be looking into the immigration um, policy and services that are being offered uh, through the city of San Jose to think about what we can do to ensure that they're culturally representative and expand, you know, in any possible in any way that's possible. Perfect. What do you think the county and the city can do to improve the conditions of childhood uh, homelessness? So there, um, you know, if we if we really get into the nitty gritty policy, there is a lot of policy that at the city and the local level um, that we can be doing to eradicate, you know, youth homelessness in, in our city. I think um, one thing that is uh, pretty, pretty easy to understand is the concept of guaranteed income. And it's definitely what I would consider, a, you know, a short term stopgap solution to make sure that we are inching away from youth homelessness and towards a place of more economic stability. But Guaranteed income is one program that I think is pretty easy to explain. And then social housing is another. So I'll take a, a couple minutes to explain both because social housing is what I think is our more long-term vision of making sure that families are like housed long-term and are not worried about becoming homeless, you know, anytime in their near future. What we see right now is that we have a minimum wage that requires families to work three jobs in order to be able to afford a two bedroom apartment. So it, it does not make sense, um, you know, the level of wealth that is required to, uh, to be securely renting or owning a home in San Jose with the minimum wage that a lot of, um, you know, employees have because Let's be real. You work your way up towards the career ladder and there's one CEO position and 10 or 20 associate positions. So over time, it's, you know, there there are a few select people who get to earn a higher income. And so we need to make sure that there are options for people who aren't able to work their way up the career ladder because there just literally aren't enough jobs, you know, in in the C-level um, space to ensure that everyone will one day be earning over $100,000 to afford the cost of living in Silicon Valley. Guaranteed income is a solution that will support families who are struggling to pay bills. It will provide money so that families with young children and families with aging adults, who would be my, my two um, focus groups uh, for a pilot project, making sure that they have the right amount of money, the right amount of funding so that they can pay their rent, pay their bills, buy groceries, and make sure that their children are 
able to um, take after school sports, after school activities, you know, whether it's music or art, um, having some kind of space for youth to continue to develop, build social relationships, build interest and hobbies outside of their, um, you know, typical school day is really important and something that we need to invest in as a community. So guaranteed income is a way for parents to, you know, fill that gap in their budget needs so that they can do it all for their kids. And it's our way of saying thank you to parents for raising children in our city and making sure that your children have what they need to grow up to be strong adults who will one day then support, you know, the economy of this city if they're able to live here and work here. And we've started them off with the love for San Jose, then, you know, we're on the right path. And as well as our aging adults, because if people have, you know, they've worked here, lived here their entire lives, I've, I've met too many people who, you know, have a lifelong partner and, you know, they're reaching, they, they've reached retirement age. Now they have a limited income and one partner passes away. And now they have one income when they were used to two incomes. And, you know, the cost of rent is increasing. The cost of living is increasing, but they have no ways of accessing new money. So have, making sure that this guaranteed income also reaches our aging adults so that they can um, stay housed in San Jose. And the longer term in, um, solution is investing in housing that is government owned, which um, is, is a policy that happens um, in Europe. I believe it's in Berlin. Social housing, or maybe it's Vienna. I'm sorry. I don't exactly know. But anyway, um, social housing is a concept that allows um someone to qualify for an affordable unit of housing and they get to live there for as long as they want without having to reapply like we do here in California every year to demonstrate that you still need affordable housing. The idea behind social housing policy is that you, you qualify, you start um, earning an income and, and, even if you no longer uh, need affordable housing, but it still helps to, to live in that community, you can earn a higher income. You can continue to live there with peace of mind that you're not going to have to leave. You have stability. And now you have um, a, a different positionality because you've worked your way up the career ladder. You have neighbors around you who may still be, you know, in... Um, in affordable uh, living needs, but you are able to uh, interconnect different social patterns and different social groups through social housing, because that's, that's one thing that I think is a big flaw in our affordable housing policy is that parents have, um, parents have access to affordable housing for as long as they need it. And then once you demonstrate that you no longer need affordable housing, you're left to the, you know, the realities of the real estate market. And so making sure that we have solutions for parents who want to work their way up the career ladder, earn a higher income, but still be stably housed. 
Well, thank you very much. And uh, well, we we hope to see you back to tell us more about these projects. And we wish all the best for you and your next campaign. And uh, this was Pamela Campos uh, from San Jose. Stay with us. And this was Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. Stanford 90.1 FM. A window to the Latin universe. This is Atenea Americana. Bilingual House of Culture. On the air and online. Su casa de la cultura en la radio y online. Para Radio 90.1 KCSU Stanford. I am Isabel Juves. Isabel Juves. Vuelve pronto. Atenea Americana from Stanford to the world. Remember to come back soon. Ciao. See you later.